This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hello, everybody out there in Radio Land. It's good to be back. We're in the studio. You'll have to excuse Patrick. He's on a work errand at the moment, but we will miss him dearly. Um, hi, Patrick. See you later. No, um, uh, so I'm not flying solo in the studio. You don't have to sit here and listen to me all day. But before that, I want to uh, just thank our sponsors for sponsoring this podcast. We couldn't do it without PK Lures, High Mountain Seasoning, and Bow Spiders. So. Thank you to those guys. Um, your support really does mean a lot to us. And if you're out there listening, go support those those companies. They uh, they do a lot for us. So without any uh, further ado, I have Jaden Bales in the studio. And we uh, are going to introduce him. He's got a, a business degree out of uh, University of Oregon. So he's an Oregon boy like me. And uh, he works for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. So welcome on the show. Thank you for having me, man. Um, and, and just while I'm thinking about it, I wanted to acknowledge that I am skipping out on my jerky making duties. They've been sitting in high mountain seasonings for the last 24 hours, and I was supposed to do that this evening. Then you asked me if I wanted to come over, and I was like, yeah, sure. So <laughs> well, you'll just have to burn the midnight oil and get get that uh, jerky on the smoker. I know it, man. So yeah, that's uh, we're making some some snacks for this hunting season, and that kicks off like in just a couple days. So uh, it's I, here already. Sheep season started today. If you if you uh, are in the know. <laughs> Oh man, that's, that blows my mind. I can't believe it's here already. It's at every off season. I keep going like, man, it doesn't get here fast enough. And then right about middle of July, all of a sudden, like time warp starts and like all of a sudden it just boom hits you. And I'm like, ah, I'm not ready. So on that charcuterie with uh, high mountain seasonings, have you Mm -hmm. tried other brands before? Yeah, uh, I've tried a just a variety of like cheap stuff or whatever, and um, I just like how it's kind of a unique seasoning in a lot of ways. Like it just has really stronger flavors, and I just keep going back to it. So yeah. uh, it's it's a you know it's the go to around here for sure. We were just in Alaska and we did a few videos and podcasts, and those will be out soon. But uh, we filled up my dad's smoker, which holds twenty six sockeye salmon. Oh, dude. and. By far, we tried four different brine recipes, two High Mountain, one my own, and one my dad's. And the uh, gourmet fish brine from High Mountain Seasoning was head and shoulders above, like, family tradition smoked fish recipes. So Okay, well, I'm going to have to tell the uh, in-laws this. We we usually smoke some trout out of the lakes here uh, in, the, in the winter, and uh, maybe that'll be his Christmas gift. I got to be careful though. I don't want him to tell him like his brine suck, but this is better. <laughs> no, no. And I mean, we're talking, I lived there, right? And I smoked a lot of fish and people, a lot of people are like, man, this is good. But mm. we pulled them out, taste tested side by side, you know, brine the same amount of time, smoked in the same smoker from the same filet, right? It's, yeah. it's the same fish and it is better. So thank you, High Mountain Seasonings for putting on such a great product, but. Well, let's jump right into it. Wyoming Wildlife Federation. What is it? Why does it exist? And why do you work there? 
All right, man. So I think the first thing that I'm going to do is talk about why I'm there. Um, because it's a lot easier to make that connection working backwards. Uh, I grew up hunting and fishing, doing all the outdoors things that, um, all of us rural, rural folks like to do or grew up doing with our families. And, um, and, and when I moved to Wyoming, I was like, man, I want to be involved with an organization that works on issues that are important to me in the whole spectrum, right? Like, if it's off season, I'm either duck hunting or ice fishing in the winter, right? In the spring, I'm, I'm, uh, either fishing, uh, uh, the runoff or I'm, uh, out spring bear hunting. And then in the fall, obviously doing all these ugly ungulate hunting and stuff. So basically I was like, where can I get involved in conservation issues that covers the gambit of things I do in Wyoming? And that was the Wyoming wildlife federation. Um, so I started volunteering like, couple years ago. And, uh, and then when a job position came open, um, I wanted to take that and move to Lander. I was in Laramie before. Uh, so I was just like, yeah, Lander's probably a little bit less windy than Laramie. So, um, that's how I ended up here. And in the Federation itself, man, it's been around since 1937. So since, um, a lot of the major, uh, nonprofits started cropping up for hunting and angling. Um, so it's been around working on policy, habitat, wildlife issues since then. Wow. And so, I mean, if it's a, if it's a wildlife issue, they're, they're going to be in the know and they're going to be helping out in some facet. And is that yeah. mostly just legislative or are there on the ground like volunteer projects as well? So, so my job here is uh, the communications guy. So I take information that all of our people on the ground are doing and try to disseminate it to folks. But we have uh, programs that include legislative work. So Jess Johnson, she's down in Cheyenne working with legislature uh, legislators all session long. But then we also have this guy, his name's Sam Lockwood. He's down in Green River and he's organizing habitat projects that people can go volunteer at and like put boots on the ground. So we kind of span the breadth. Um, also like we have a uh, education director who has been putting on camps just these last couple of years. Uh, we had camps in Jackson Lander and Riverton this year um, for kids and doing kids education. So like I said, we kind of have a lot of, a lot of spokes to this wheel with different people doing different parts, working within wildlife habitat, conservation issues and education. Wow. That's yeah. I mean, that's a fingers in a lot of pots. So since you've been there, has there been any big bills that you've helped work on or projects? You know, um, so when I was a volunteer, uh, there were a bunch of bills that uh, were, were pretty substantial. One of those that people will see around the state now is the uh, license plate, the conservation plate. Um, so Jess uh, in particular led up or was, was part of that whole coalition of people trying to get the wildlife conservation plate passed. And that's the, the big mule deer buck that's on everyone's uh, vehicles who buys it. And, and a portion of that or all that sale after the first year um, goes towards wildlife crossings every year. And that was a really good one that I like. Um, and then this is last year. Actually, it would be be two years ago now. Um, Jess, and this is when I was first uh, a full-on staff member, Jess led up this uh, effort to um, get roadkill collection legal. And that's kind of been a fun one that, I, that we've actually used now. Um, this gal hit a deer out in front of our house, and it was 12 degrees outside, and we went and picked up this mule deer doe and then helped this gal process it after she smoked it with her car. So um, 
there's there's been some cool like especially roadway uh related bills in legislature that have been uh fun to work on these last few years awesome awesome well i'm glad that they're out there i mean i've been reading a book and we had a guest on um, books called bringing back the lions okay and uh there's some really cool um, similarities between the North American wildlife conservation model and what they're implementing in Africa and some of the changes. And so if you get time, and I mean, it's an, it's an older podcast, I'm not going to go in depth about it, but the, I'm about three quarters away through the book called Bringing Back the Lions. And it's uh, it's opened my eyes to a few things. It's oh, very cool. I mean, it's cool. And it, one of the things I'll I'll give you a teaser on is just the symbiotic relationship between wildlife managers the actual hunters and then the local people right Mm -hmm. and those three groups have to give get along in symbiosis right they have to i mean take an elephant for example if an elephant is coming in every night and raiding a farmer's two acre cornfield that they're literally irrigating by hand and and (laughs) tilling by hand that's their livelihood and their winter food they're they're very quickly going to hire a poacher to come kill that elephant who's going to remove the ivory and and ship it to Asia because if the local people aren't going to turn the poacher in because they're tired of the elephant, right? That elephant has no value to the local people Mm -hmm. other than, hey, we're going to not have our corn destroyed. And so there's this dichotomy of one animal has to die for 99 to live, right? And this is, you and I are hunters, we understand this. Yeah. But it's very blatantly put out in the book that if the anti-poaching team can get through to the local population that, hey, we're going to basically supplement whatever the elephant destroyed, we're going to replace. So don't go killing the elephant, leave the elephant alone. And then we're going to hire a professional hunter to come in and harvest one nuisance elephant or we're going to track relocate collar move whatever they're going to su- use some wildlife management tool to remedy this situation right but the bigger picture is the elephant gets to live and have habitat to live in and i mean after being in africa elephant are destructive i mean right now kruger national park looks like a nuclear war zone because i don't know the exact number but they're they're like 4x density on the elephants they should be and a herd of 40 elephants goes through and breaks every tree in their way down, eats a few leaves off of it and goes and snaps the next tree down. That's just what elephants do. So, I mean, it's got to be in balance, right? But that, that piece and what that in the book, they, they do a much better job than I can of, of articulating this argument, but it's, it's as simple as winning the hearts and minds of the villagers to not hire the poacher having an anti-poaching team that's going out and actually reprimanding and having a government that will prosecute a poacher, Mm -hmm. right? And then having hunting concessions or ground set aside like a national park where these animals can roam freely and not get on roadways and in farmer's crops. And so there's all these multiple facets that go together to create a... But if you can get the balance correctly... Right then, the wildlife flourish, and the local people start saying, "No, you're not going to shoot our elephant because that's what brings our hunter in." And my brother works on the game concession that helps skin and and butcher the elephant. And so, part of it in Mozambique specifically, when they first restarted after this big civil war, these hunting concessions, they guaranteed like fifty pounds a month of meat per family. Wow! Right, so 
you go over, you pay $10,000 trophy fee to kill animal X, right? Mm -hmm. And you're killing one out of 100 because the biologist has said, yeah, we, and you're taking the oldest species that's no longer contributing to the gene pool anyways, mm -hmm. right? So there's a lot of good, and I can sit there and justify my the pe the, the hunters at um, approach telling blue in the face, but on boots on the ground where the, where the rubber meets the road is that meat makes it to that villager. That villager feeds his family and is no longer motivated to walk out his back door in the middle of the night and put a snare or a trap out that kills indiscriminately, but he doesn't care. He's going to, he needs meat. He wants right. to eat food. And you know, so once you've satisfied all those needs and can get the government to back the, wildlife you know here we we don't have these issues as big right we do have a few guys that like to go drink beer and drive around the middle of the night with spotlight and shoot yeah. stuff and you do that in front of me i'm calling the game warden and and the anti-poaching team the game warden shows up and starts running license plates and all of a sudden somebody gets their truck impounded and they go to jail and you know i i don't affiliate or associate with those people so right. Right. Well, and it's, it's, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's like finding that symbiosis between the local community, the hunters and like the government or the other agencies, um, is just huge. Um, you look at like on the East side of the state right now where you have a little bit of a rift between some landowners and you have a little bit of a rift between the hunters because the landowners feel like they're getting their grass eaten out of house and home when there's three times as many elk in the unit than they, they expected or wanted to be there with the objective. And then hunters are like, well, you know, there's not enough elk in, that are accessible on the public grounds that we can hunt. Like, you know, we need to work on this access issue. Um, and I think like you're saying, it just comes down to people being able to work together on these things um, to find a wildlife management solution that makes sense for everybody. Cause most of the time, it probably isn't going to make sense for hundred percent of the people, but if you can find common ground and get, to some good solutions. Like you said, um, in, in the case of the African example, it's like, look, if we can kill one that will help keep the balance in place, that is, that is good outcome in Wyoming. We look at this, like if you can allow a couple more people to hunt your place so that we can keep the elk off your property, like that is a, that is a success because then you get more hunters in access uh, to places where they wouldn't have had access otherwise. And so. I've seen that example work really, really well with antelope right here in this unit that we're, yeah. we're recording in today, right? You've got alfalfa fields everywhere. Yeah. And an antelope's going to eat, I don't know, four or five pounds of alfalfa a day. And when you got 70 of them out there day in and day out. Yep. But they put some doe tags out and the, the state actually like mails you a list of landowners with their phone numbers to call and go get permission from. Cause I don't just want to open the gate to my property here and let anybody no. come hunt. Right. But if I'm having some depredation issues with some crop damage, yeah, let's, because of course those antelope are going to hop the fence and go eat alfalfa instead of sagebrush. Are, are you going to have T-bone steaks? Or are you going to have dog food? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, right. Yeah. It, no doubt. They're not stupid. So, but it works on the micro level and it does work on the macro level. And the other thing I picked up from the book here recently that was a little shocking is this one hunting concession that they're talking about in the book without spoiling too much more. I, I hope you just go read the book, but yeah. there's a premise that the reason this one is doing so good is they have some really big outside donors that are really not even hunters, right? Okay. And so, like you were talking about the the license plate here that goes to wildlife crossings, mm -hmm. 
hunting license fees are never going to be able to accommodate because those wild each one of those crossings is over a million dollars if you if you drive by and look at the i don't know there's nine or ten or eleven there's a bunch over there in pinedale where the deer were getting killed all the time Mm -hmm. they've now put in the high fencing and then a bridge across the top of the freeway right yeah i mean each one of those is is a couple million dollar project and and they're super effective. That's the other cool. Oh no, the, no, they're. I think we need them, and I'm glad we have them. But without some outside funding help, mm-hmm. right? Those projects are gonna get put on the back burner. Yeah, that wildlife crossing out of Dubois that they just are, they're working on it now. Uh, I, if I remember right, I, I'm trying to recall correctly from my brain, but I saw a headline yesterday. It was like 10.1 million just for the wildlife crossings outside of Dubois, you know, and we have, but there's a lot of deer that get creamed on that road right there. Oh yeah. And, I, and a lot of really nice ones, yeah. <laughs> but you're so right. And bighorn sheep on that same stretch, you know, they come down in those red rocks and they get smacked right there on the highway. Um, and that's a, that's a great example of how, what you're, I think what you're getting to is just that um, there are other mechanisms for people to get involved in this con- wildlife conservation outside of, and it, it's oftentimes really effective when people can get involved in wildlife conservation outside of just hunting de- dollars. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we could translate it to fishing, right? Yeah. So you're buying a fishing license, you're going to your favorite reservoir, stream, whatever, but there's habitat restoration projects, there's access, there's just cleanups that need to be done that yep. need funding and need help and need volunteers, whether it's money or dollars or labor. And that's what they're talking about in this book is they actually brought lions back and the amount of money it costs to reintroduce lions the license sales will never support. Right. Right. And so there's just, but <laughs> at some point in time, I want to go hear, see and witness and experience lions mm-hmm. and whether that's to hunt one or not, that's kind of up to me to decide, but I, I'm glad people are out there now funding the conservation to make it possible for me to go harvest a lion at some point in time in my life. Well, I think about that a lot when we talk about the grizzly bears here, right? Like originally it was like when we discussed like um, delisting, I think I was 2017 into 18 or 18 and no, 17 into 18, I think. Um, And it was this notion that it was like, man, we are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to manage these grizzly bears. It sure would be nice to bring in some revenue um, to try to offset the cost. It certainly wasn't going to make it a moot. Moot value. It, it, it'll, they'll never break even. No. But what one thing without without risking being in an echo chamber is, yeah, the grizzly bear should be should be hailed as one of the big success stories of mm-hmm. the Endangered Species Act. Period. Yeah, I mean there was no grizzly bears. Let's just be honest; <laughs> they weren't here. Mm-hmm. They go on the endangered species list. There's all this stuff, you know, from the 70s till now. It should be touted as a great success story that those are going back on the state's management and being huntable population. And, you know, I've, I have some very strong feelings about the grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have some respect for them. I think they're a neat critter, mm-hmm. but having been an Alaskan resident, when I yell at a bear in Alaska, it runs the other way. Right. When I yell at a bear here, and we're not talking, oh, I'm up in the park or I'm, we're talking, I'm in, in my honey holes, you know, usually wilderness. So you can pull a map out in Wyoming and figure out which wilderness I'm in. But when I yell at those bears, Jaden, they run towards me. Yeah. It's a 50-50 and I don't know. And it's scary. Dude. I mean, 
It's insane. And have you had Dan Thompson on yet? We have. Okay, good. So you've heard you've heard this all, but um, just when he talks and about so for the listeners out there, okay, without cutting you off, Dan Thompson yeah. is the large carnivore uh, wildlife biologist for the state of Wyoming. So yep. he runs all of awesome. the big big carnivores. He lives in Lander. Um, but one of the things he's, he's talked about is like, okay, like, great. We have a problem bear in Cody, uh, and we need to move that thing. Where are we going to put that bear that isn't on top of another bear, another bear's habitat? And he's like, we are like literally to the, we are, we are full up of what we've identified as suitable habitat for bears to put bears back in. So we can't like, you can't move anything around without there's no holes left, you know, for the population to expand to. And so there's a famous area in Alaska. All the problem bears in Anchorage get uh-huh. flown over to 16B and collared and kicked out the plane, right? Okay. You can kill two bears in 16B as a resident every year. But that's where all the maulings now happen with moose hunters is 16B because they have all these problem bears <laughs> oh, no. that are habituated to people, right? Oh, that's so bad. I'm... I'm of the opinion now we don't need to be transporting bears around. If we have a problem bear, we now have an excess population of them. And we can go all the way back to the hunt that got shut down for political reasons, not right. management reasons. And that really infuriates me that we have, we, I say we as the taxpayers, have hired and paid Dan Thompson's salary. Yep. And he's gone and got a very good education and does a lot of work and knows exactly what he's talking about. Yep. And he says, hey, we need to pull 50 bears out of this population to curb the exponential growth that's happening. Yep. And then the Ninth Circuit judge on the on the ninth hour in the ninth inning pulls the rug out from under the whole deal and says, no, we, these, we, these are going to be protected. And that's where I'm, I will call out the, the Greenpeace organizations who are sitting here saying that they're touting protecting wildlife. They're not doing anything. No. They're actually harming, and they don't really see that one of the ramifications is, is they, Jaden, I think the state on depredation kills about 50 bears a year. I was just about to say that. I think the other day I read it was it was 47 or something last year or 64. It, I'm getting it. It's right around And the way now. they had Dan and the guys that set that season up, it was split between two units, 12 bears in each unit, so uh-huh. 24 bears total, uh-huh. and there was one sow mortality quotas in the two units. So yeah, we were so, going to kill eight to 10 bears max before we hit the it. mortality quota and shut the seasons down. Yeah. Right? And there was a whole orientation involved like with yeah. the whole process. It was very in-depth. If you were going to have one of those tags, you were in for like a, a serious investment of time and energy and knowledge to like even just go into the woods. It was. But, I thought they did a good job. But to hand the management back over to the feds mm-hmm. is no different than us handing the, <laughs> the tax obligation back over to the British Empire. <laughs> that's that's akin to what just happened, right? Here you have, because the Greenies sued and they sued on four counts and it got held up on two. And one was that the Asian bark beetle was killing all the white bark uh, pine, bark pine, and yeah. the pine nuts weren't available for the bears. And so Dan Thompson and the state of Wyoming spent one point three million dollars to go study collar and check bear poop out and check weights. <laughs> and guess what they found at the end of this study? When the pine nuts aren't available, the bears utilize other food sources and there's no threat to their body condition. They're an omnivore. I'm like, well, duh, I could have told you that, (laughs) but we had to spend and prove. And I'm, I'm glad I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at our game and fish. They, I really do think they do a, 
the best job and they have, you know, they get hammered from both sides, the, the left oh. and the right, and they're hated on both sides. So I'm going to give them a little bit of a break on this podcast and, and, you know, I, we could, we can talk about it right now. I've been in other States that don't change quotas unit by unit year by year yeah. that don't really care about managing for the overall health of wildlife they care about managing for the dollar and the state is oregon and (laughs) i'm sitting on 13 oregon elk points and i don't think i'll ever utilize them and here's why on a general over-the-counter tag in the west right Mm -hmm. montana idaho colorado wyoming yep i can kill a bull over 300 inches yep i burn my 13 elk points and get maybe emily maybe blues and maybe kill a 320 bull yeah I, no and, thank you and you've got all the other spike hunters running around in the woods with you yeah uh, and, and i have to burn a week or two of time energy and gas so oregon they can until they figure out that mountain lions eat elk until they figure out that wolves eat elk and that they need managed and i'm not gonna pay more and more money for less and less opportunity i'm sorry you you're from there so what's your take well i just burned 12 points last year to go on a rifle hunt with my dad and my brother outside of a unit that's my brother's backyard so we stayed at his house and we had an enjoyable hunt we didn't end up killing an elk because we were trying to get my brother a bull and he hasn't gotten a bull yet so we passed on some cows and you know tried to work away anyway regardless it was a great hunt for trying to get an elk And I spent 12 points. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a great time though. I mean, and that's the whole thing. And and it comes back to um, like you're saying that there is a balance that that game and fish has to play with opportunity and quality, right? Because you can do the other model of offering all of the opportunity in the world without too much interest in the quality of the experience. Um, but obviously whenever you work on the quality of the experience, you sacrifice some of the opportunity. So it's like, okay, well, you just have to work on the balance of that. And that is a really hard job. Yeah, that's, and I'm, I'm not trying to throw stones at, at ODF and W too hard other than I would have never left if the blacktail hunting was on the incline, not the decline. Right. It's down, it's now down to it. it, I've I've hammered him so hard I don't even want to get after him more. But it's it's mm-hmm. to the point now where a seven hundred dollar um, blacktail tag I may or may not see a deer the whole time I go hunt there for seven days versus Ooh. I can buy a three hundred and fifty dollar deer tag in Colorado Idaho Montana you know draw whatever but a, a mule deer a tag hunt. is three fifty, and I can go kill a one sixty buck on a over the counter kind of general public land opening week hunt, right? Mm-hmm. Versus go buy the blacktail tag, and I mean, I would love, I would, Jaden, if I could go hunt blacktail every year. I, I grew up doing it, and there's until you've done it and been successful at it, it's there's there's very few things. I mean, you, you're you're hunting a critter that's borderline nocturnal 11 right. months of the year you, it's, they're like a ghost yeah and well, you get a foggy misting morning and you're in old growth timber patch and all of a sudden here this chocolate little like marshmallow thing appears and starts floating towards you because they're just silent as all get out right your heart gets thumping pretty good oh that's sweet yeah like i was telling you before i, I grew up on the mule deer side of the state so i didn't have that experience and um 
I still got to do it at some point. Maybe, I, maybe that's what my big pile of points goes towards eventually. It's a really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm threatening every year, but it's again, they, the model in Oregon is manage for dollars, not manage for wildlife. Right. And so every time I've turned around, they've increased, you know, resident elk tags now 55 bucks. It was 30, not two decades ago. Now I'm fine with them getting a little more money and putting a little more burden on the resident hunter than the non-resident hunter. And we'll get into it right now. I think it's folly that Wyoming is going to do the 90-10 rule from the 80-20. I'm, I'm opposed to that. For the big five. Yeah, I'm opposed to it. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to, one thing I was going to comment on because um, I think that it is a really cool case study to try to, to show some, um, some balance or not balance, some contrast um, in Oregon though, like they have 5% non-resident allocation for deer and elk and 3% for pronghorn. Um, if they really wanted to make more money, they would increase the non-resident tags that are 600 bucks a pop. I don't know. I just paid Something yeah. like that last year. Um, so I do think that, and, and I think you're right, is they've kind of, they, they're trying to to play this game of like, what does the general public want for hunting opportunity and how can they try to run that agency in some way? And they, Oregon's just a totally different state with how they fund that thing. 50 something, 50, 60% of it goes to fish, not not the game on the ground, you know, so. Well, I, I know that predators need to be managed yeah. and creating a predator pit with, intact wolves and grizzly and uh, not grizzly bears black bears and mountain lions you know they yeah they they by their own numbers have set that their quota their limit for mountain lions is 4000 and they're at 9000 cats the last time i checked and that's an estimation they're probably at 10 or 11000 cats and they want to have four you know it's yeah. it, same thing sea lions and fishermen right and i've heard i've <laughs> i've had this argument with a few people before right big Big fishermen are like, man, we need to kill every sea lion out there, and we got to get rid of them. And I'm like, well, what about us elk hunters? We feel the same about wolves. Yeah. Well, that's different. I'm like, no, actually, a sea lion is a water wolf, and yeah, salmon is an elk in that ecosystem. One of the things I think Wyoming has done a good job of when I look at this whole predator conversation is with wolves. Um, when you talk about the pendulum swings that have happened in other states, um, and, and what it looks like politically, I'm not even talking about what it looks like for wolves on the ground, but like the political backlash that comes from the things that Montana and Idaho have changed in the last year, 18 months or whatever it was. Um, then you look at Wyoming over here that we're just like kind of twiddling our fingers like, don't, uh, but don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Yeah. Don't, don't look at us. We're, we're doing it pretty good, honestly, because with our predator zone, man, we've, so we've identified this area where we're like, we need to be very selective about our wolf harvest. And this is basically the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and, uh, have a quota system with tags and whatever. But outside of that, we're going to say, you know, socially, it's not quite as acceptable. We want to keep those wolf's numbers down and, um, and, and basically just have like a predator, uh, designation, just like a coyote. Um, and I think, you know, just like looking across the West, I think that that way of managing has been the best for all groups involved, um, that anyone has come up with yet. So, I, that's my that's my take on at least with hats that. off kudos to whoever came up with the predator zone versus the trophy management zone it's yep. a it's a good buffer around the park and the park can do what they want with their wolves and yep you know i 
Except I've, I was the only wolf I've seen so far was in the dang trophy zone, and I just hunting outside of uh, in the predator zone most of the time. I didn't think about buying a tag, and then I was up in the trophy zone, and there, sure enough, saw one, and I was like, oh, "Dang it, I'm gonna have to go back with a tag this year." So you got to see my wife's moose, and uh-huh. we were up scout hunting. So we were it was season, and uh-huh. she was hunting one meadow with her dad, and I took my buddy, and we we're like spotting other meadows and wallows at her, you know, those big willow flat meadows. Yeah. And we'd hiked in, I don't know, two and a half miles, and we're sitting there in two wolves howl. And I'm sitting there with my rifle with a wolf tag in my pocket, and I'm howling back and forth at those things. And there was an island of timber in the middle of this willow meadow. It was 50 yards wide and 100 yards long, and there's a wolf upstream of it in a big patch of timber howling at the wolf that's in the middle and they're howling back and forth and I'm howling and he would not come out. He, he was in that patch and he, they finally, they finally shut up and went somewhere else. I never got to see him, but no. we're talking 190, 200 yards and we just walked up to the edge and sitting there. I'm like, Hey, let's just, and they, they howled first. I didn't. And I was like, Oh yeah. my goodness, I'm going to get my wolf and I'm getting excited. <gasps> and so, yes, that's still, you know, there, there isn't a wolf out there in the, in the trophy room yet and that's going to happen those critters are so dang smart man i think right now on my my to-do list in the winter is still i want to i got to get a cat uh and i've been chasing them down i I like to just because i don't have dogs i don't have i like haven't built access to dogs i've been tracking and trying to call them and um i've seen three cats this last year 12 and 12 months um so I think it's I think gonna happen I've seen this year. three cats in my life, and one of them's on my wall, and the other one should be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been—I don't know if it's super lucky or unlucky, whatever you, you want to put it. Um, but uh, I, I think I'll, I'm, I'm getting close. I'm honing in. I, I might connect this last, this next. I, I will connect this next winter. But uh, after that, then it's the challenge of the wolves, and I know, especially in in my neck of the woods, like there's a couple of really diehard people, snowmobiles. They're out all the time. They're tracking. They're trying to figure out. And it's like they can spend all winter long. They might cut some tracks, but they, like, still have a hard time ever seeing them. They're just so fast across that snow. And they're so smart to the sound of a machine, you know, that, like, they just gone. Um, so I think that's a whole other challenge. When you're talking about hunting because it's, like, a, a tough task to do, I think getting a wolf is, is very tough. I, I tried, I actually put traps on the ground in Alaska and, and tried. And even I was between Skelak and Tustamina Lake, had a snow machine, put up about 25 snares. And I'd go out, get on their trail, on their tracks, right? And hang snares. And then snow levels would adjust. So you got to adjust them up and down. But the wolves had kind of like a, a two week circle. They'd go okay. hang around Tustamina, and then they'd circle up the north, hang around Skelak, and then come back through. And that was that pack's pattern. Well, they'd come through once every two weeks, right? Oh. And they'd always come through two or 300 yards away from where they came through the last time. And so <laughs> I'm just sitting here nuking this one, like, yeah. bottleneck funnel, and I never did get my wolf. That's funny. Well, and, and that I wonder, you know, I don't know if you can say, like, they're doing this super intentionally. They, they smell your scent or whatever the case is. But regardless, whatever their instinct is to not go through that same point, that is impressive to me. I think that, I mean, they're just a cool freaking critter. Um, so to figure them out, I think is like you're saying, it's just, is a that's, it's hard. It takes dedication. Well, I can tell that your passion for wildlife and, you know, your, your enjoyment of work kind of go to hand in hand, oh, right? Yeah. You, you're like on the weekend, you're, you're hunting, chasing, doing something. And then during the week you're working to some facet to help improve wildlife. So 
thanks for thanks for that piece of that, right? I can see you that. Bet. Well, and, and uh, you know, we're talking over here about some of the issues that we see with wildlife management from the state's perspective. And um, one of the things, like, I think originally that I wanted to do is get involved in a way that was above and beyond what you just see the state doing. Um, and because I, I think that, you know, for whatever reason, I don't want to rag on them too much. They're just, there are natural constraints to do that work, right? But WWF can go out here, work with the landowner, figure out with the BLM, like, what this fence is built for. God, this thing is laying all over. The- Actually, we just removed an eight foot tall elk fence that was built in like the fifties um, last weekend outside of Dubois. And it's like a half mile, well, it was 0.6 miles worth of this six, eight foot tall fence that was built for elk. That's just now out in the middle of public land. An elk catch fence. Yeah. And so, um, so anyway, we went out and ripped it down and uh, you know, I just, uh, we work with all these different agencies, but I hope I just it's like... not my elk catch fence. Cause there's one that I really <laughs> like to, it's a really good funnel. <laughs> the That's elk so have funny. to, <laughs> they have to come, they can't go through it. Right. Well, if it is, you should tell me, but yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> see when, when I go up there this fall, I'll be like, where'd my, where'd my elk fence they go? They said it was real hard to get to. I, I was gone that weekend. Um, and, uh, yeah, they said it was real hard to get to and just a bear, and that's why it hadn't been pulled out yet. But uh, the moral of that story was just being like, you know, when the the general public says like, hey, we want to make a difference, um, there's like avenues to just go freaking make a difference. You yes. know, you don't have to sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. Um, and that's to why pass I, a piece of legislation and get approval and get it rubber yeah. stamped and then go out and now it's just like, hey, that fence needs removed and we need access. And yep. yeah, sure, I'll let you guys go tear that down. But those old timers knew a thing or two because they put that elk fence in a place that I find elk. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I know this one used to be like um, they had a the, the, the game and fish purchased a an old ranch, and I think the old ranch put that fence up for hay fields. Um, and then so when there was no hay field left, like there's no purpose for it. But regardless, yeah. so that was yeah, you're I, exactly I, right. I always I never I just think mine was an old catch pen for some reason, but maybe it's not. It kind of looks mine. The one I I hunt by has kind of low fencing to like a catch pen with a gate, but maybe it's just a hay. Okay. But it, there's no hay fields around it, so y- yours will still be there then. Good, yeah. Good. <laughs> so if you had to pick one species, one weapon to hunt forever what would it be and why mule deer with a bow um because uh i don't know why but they've just caught my attention man um so i do a lot of side projects um you were just commenting on how like my work is my passion and yes but you also have to sacrifice pay it usually to do that um (laughs) so i worked as an out or as a guide for an outfitter for a number of years and yes you sacrifice a lot of pay don't (laughs) if if anybody's out there listening they're gonna go start guiding for an outfitter don't calculate your per hour no rate don't do that you'll 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 be very frustrated <laughs> yeah so uh one of these side projects that i uh, that i do and and have done for a while is uh is a mule deer podcast with uh, my friend cody rich what's it called uh it's literally just called muley monday uh with the rich outdoors podcast love it um, i'll have to check it out uh and uh well I, I would appreciate that that'd be great but so it just for whatever reason um a handful of years ago i just decided like man uh, let me back this up even further. Actually, this is a pretty good story. Uh, when I couldn't draw the local deer tag anymore, the local rifle deer tag anymore, I picked up a bow and I was like, okay, like I, I got to hunt deer every year, you know? Um, and, uh, the first year I went out, 
there was a buck bedded underneath this cliff edge in the sagebrush. I walked up and shot him at 18 yards. And I was like, huh, this is this is pretty easy. I've been wanting to do that my whole life. <laughs> it took me seven more years to replicate it, but, you know, like, <laughs> we'll just breeze over that part. So I got this deer, and then I go, man, I'd like to get an elk. And then, frick, it took me four or five years of, of stumbling around in the elk woods. I was not having success. And then I was listening to this podcast called The Rich Outdoors, and I go, Cody, like, I'm, I'd love to help you out in the podcast or whatever if you teach me how to kill an elk. And um, so this one season, I dedicated all to hunting elk. But every day I went out elk hunting and I'd see a deer, I'd be like, oh, I should go chase that. And I should go chase that. And so I eventually did get an elk that year. But I think after doing that, I realized like, ah, I just really want to chase deer while I'm elk hunting. So that's led, that's led to that obsession of, uh, just figuring them out. And we do a lot of biology podcasts and try to figure out, you know, um, looking into the, the, man, the, the myriad of issues that face the mule deer populations. Um, some places they're doing pretty good. Some places they're not. Some places they're just seesawing back and forth, you know, and, and it's hard to say. Which is crazy because I mean, elk in the West they're just going up. They're just, they're, they're, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and speculate on why, what, where, but, mm-hmm. you know, as a Oregon bow hunter, and why did I pick up a bow? Because, well, you just couldn't get a rifle tag. And, and there's a, yep. there's an interesting trend I see there of guys that got successful in Oregon bow hunting are like abandoning the state and they're moving to other states and they're just killers. They oh, are yeah. absolutely, I mean, I don't know if it's, well, I mean, part of it is you go from a unit that's three or six percent, you drop us at a unit that's thirty or sixty or twenty percent success. Like, what? I could actually, I actually have a chance this year. Yeah, you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah, that's so. That's so the case, man. Um, man, and, and it, I, I just love the fact that like we have, like, regardless of how they're doing, um, we have a lot of critters on the landscape. They could be better. Don't get me wrong in a lot of cases, but, um, like you said, there's a lot of opportunity, but there's a lot of organizations that are doing some really good work mm-hmm. into what the mule deer need. And I mean, just, just yeah. that migration study they've done right here in this state blew my mind yeah. as far as how far those mule deer really do travel and how close those migratory mule deer travel to this. In other words, we had, um, one of the earlier podcasts, you can go, check it out. We had one of the biologists on talking about the mule deer study, but she gave a report at the uh, Bowhunter and Wyoming convention. <laughs> and it's one of the earlier podcasts. I don't have it here in front of me. So you just go, go listen to all the earlier Radcast podcasts and you'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But um, on the mule deer front, uh, one of the does they had collared had a fawn the next year. That fawn had her fawn, so her granddaughter, like 300 yards away from her. And they used the exact same path migrating back and forth. Mm-hmm. And even after the grandma died, the daughter and, and granddaughter deer still started using a very, very similar migration path. It's like ingrained, almost like salmon. And that, I've always, you know, because like you, I just wandered around. Oh, there's a deer. I guess deer just randomly wander around because yeah. elk kind of have a methodical, this is the trail, this is the saddle, this is where we're going. I just kind of thought deer were just, you know, I just thought they were like coyotes, right? It was, yeah. There's a coyote, there's a deer. It's just, I didn't have any idea, any clue. I was just naive, but. Well, and that's like, I think one of my favorite things and probably why I'm more of a deer hunter and here's another reason, I guess, is because my hunting season started in June because I could start scouting and then I'm going to go roll into September 1 
having a whole host of different deer that I found in different drainages. And I just have to choose. Yeah. Should I go chase that? Oh dude, I found this giant fork and horn yesterday. Side note. And I think I might try to chase him. Anyway, <laughs> should I go chase that giant fork and horn? Heavy, I found? Heavy. Oh yeah. I'll show you a picture after this. Uh, He's so, cool. so we're not talking guys. We're not, uh, I've seen a couple of these before in the past. I'll we'll check out the picture, but yeah, we're not talking like a year and a half old, like, you know, spike with forks. We're talking like a regress, like nine, 10 year old, Yep. Basically like a four-point mainframe muley with all the other points missing and just mass. And they are cool deer. They're so cool. And I haven't I haven't got one yet. Um, and uh, so, you know, this, that, that, that goes back to the point of like, you can go and kind of figure out like, oh man, that's a cool buck. That's a cool buck. That's a cool buck. That's the biggest buck I've found. You know, am I going to chase him all, all archery season or not? And then you can go back and when it hits hunting season, you hit the ground rolling and you're just in critters the whole time. Um, and I, I just, I really like that. Just, I think it kind of adds days to the season for me mentally. Um, but I, yeah, just I would like feel that about, way about antelope, right? Yeah. Yeah. You were just talking about that before the podcast, man. You go find a buck and then you sit that, like you can pattern that sucker and you go can find pattern it. a buck. And, and there's, there's two types of nuclei, I'll call them, that I've noticed. When water's pretty pleasurable, there's a lot of it, mm-hmm. a buck is going to defend a harem and that harem and that buck are going to use one water hole, right? And if mm-hmm. within like 10 acres or maybe a hundred acres or they, they have a set little poop pile if another buck wanders in there that buck is going to take tear off across the next mile and have to chase him out right mm-hmm. but when water kind of dissipates and disappears and those more of those natural water holes disappear and they're now using like a tank trough the bucks can no longer defend the whole trough and the whole area around it right they're just right. wasting energy so then they abandon um, territory and they start just defending their little harem yeah that's so cool. I, I think pronghorn, they're our WWF's uh, logo, and uh, I think they're super underrated. The other thing is just being in Wyoming, man, they are, I mean, we have more pronghorn in this state than most of the other states combined. <laughs> so know? in Alaska, doll sheep is the best table fare, and okay. there's no argument. It is the best table fare. I haven't had doll sheep, so we'll have to remedy that sometime. We can, we can work on that. I'll, I'll bring you some mountain goat home this time, but okay, maybe next time. Uh, there is some stuff going on up there if... Uh, we can get into it a little bit, but I'm not happy about it. However, back I to, I haven't had uh, sheep here in Wyoming yet, uh-huh. but of the species I have had, antelope is the best table fare. You can do anything with it. I love it. It's so good. I've cooked antelope backstrap next to, you know, hayfield, alfalfa field, cow elk backstrap, mm-hmm. and the antelope's better. I agree. The only downside is, is you don't get very much off of one. Yep. <laughs> so... But charcuterie, we make we make some uh, snack sticks, and then backstrap is always slow cooked on the smoker, and it's oh, it's so good. You know, um, uh, Jess, she made me. Um, well, she's made a lot of people this, uh, but uh, tartar. Have you had tartar? Um, she made some wild sheep tartar a couple years ago, and I will say, if you want to just know what a thing tastes like, that's a pretty good way to do it. Um, it was good. It was really good. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I still don't think it beats pronghorn tartare, but it was good. So we'll we'll have our little high mountain seasoning moment here, our spot. Okay. You know, if you had to procure one animal, one recipe, how what what is it going to be, and how are you cooking it? Oh, I just I was just raving about mule deer, but it will be a pronghorn, and it is literally just taking a backstrap, slapping some good seasoning on it. 
putting it on a hot cast iron, making sure it crisps up on each side, maybe with a little butter, slap that sucker in the um, oven to finish it off, and then pull it out medium rare. Okay. Slice it thin. A little bit of broccoli on the side? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I can come over for dinner now. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me hungry just thinking about it. Just make sure you put some high mountain seasoning on there. That's right. Thank you, Hans, and High Mountain Seasoning for sponsoring podcast. And we really do. I've had listeners, you guys really like that stuff. You really use that stuff. I would use it if they didn't sponsor us. I used it before the podcast, and I'll continue using it afterwards because it is that good. Well, that's what I'm saying, man. That's the one That's the one seasoning I buy for all my game meat. So, And I'm not sponsored by them. So There we go. Take Jaden's word for it. So to get into Alaska, and we won't delve too deep, but uh, basically they shut down parts of 26 and 24 right. to doll sheep trophy hunting, but they're going to leave the subsistence use hunting open. And my issue with that is from a management objective standpoint, if the sheep numbers warrant restricting hunting, right, we shouldn't be leaving the subsistence use where they can kill any sheep and be closing the eight-year ramp. Because I don't care what you say, the trophy hunters that are going up there paying twenty six, twenty seven, even thirty thousand dollars to go on a doll sheep hunt, or if you go watch my film on our YouTube channel, we hiked in in one of those units and did a DIY over the counter doll sheep hunt. Right now, I have some connections, and in the film, you'll see how and where and what and why. But we harvested an eight and a half year old ram. Actually, it's nine and a half year old ram. My ram that I harvested a couple of years prior is eight and a half year old, right? Mm-hmm. Those rams are pretty much done contributing to the genetic gene pool. Mm-hmm. They're off by themselves. They're bats or rams. The sheep, if we removed every eight and a half year old ram on the whole mountain, could snap our fingers. The sheep population is going to grow next year because those rams reach maturity at two and a half and the four to six year olds are doing a majority of the breeding, right? Yep. They start getting to that older age and they don't have the body conditioning, the stamina and everything else to fight off the younger rams. I mean, it, it's just, it's science. It's proven. I'm not going to get any to it any further, but as a hunter who would contribute to conservation, I, I'm okay if they shut the whole thing down, right? If they're like, Hey, yeah. I, that's not my gripe. But if, and if the game and fish and if their surveys Suggests that there's a scientific based reason to shut them down too. Yes. However, you can't leave subsistence hunting open where they get six months to hunt them. They can hunt them from snowmobiles and they just wait till the snow flies, run up a hill and chase them around and shoot them from the machines. And you can't tell me that they don't. And I, somebody's going to scream and yell and, but it, there's subsistence use hunters do uh, on some level abuse compared to the guys that are backpacking in. 50, 60, 70 miles, sitting there watching sheep, picking a sheep out, and waiting for the opportune moment to go out and harvest one. And if that guy doesn't find that eight-year-old legal full coral ram, he goes home without one. Yep. If you go out subsistence and you don't come out home with one, you know, you're like, I'm not going to eat. Well, my issue with that is there's 100, 150 pounds of meat on a sheep. I, I really don't think we should be using sheep as subsistence. I, but I'm a huge sheep hunting nut and fan. So take all that with a grain of salt. But I don't, I'm don't. i not happy with the feds shutting down Alaska. 
Well, it goes back to like the way that our model has worked since we identified a problem in the early 1900s was if we have hunting seasons, you can take the males because you can have a very low population of males on the landscape and still continue to grow the herd for, for deer, for example, that's in the single digits, eight, nine, maybe, uh, you know, you'll see if, if, if you have bad conditions, you want 10 bucks per hundred does on the landscape. Um, and you can still grow populations with that. You can Everything's still grow getting with 10 to, to yeah. hundred. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but, and then I don't know what the sheep situation is off the top of my head. I just know that the deer is an example and we've been able to hunt this entire, you know, last century because we can take the males and the population still grows. Like there can still continue to be an element of conservation while that happens. And this works across, what's really cool about our model is it works across all all facets and you, mm-hmm. all you need to go is go go research bison go research elk go research white-tailed deer go research turkeys you go look at the history of those four species in particular they're all success stories mm-hmm. they're all bison were almost gone elk were almost gone white-tailed deer were diminished turkeys were almost gone mm-hmm. right and then pronghorn yeah pronghorn another one but you look at the numbers and it's it's sub staggering i mean there's more white-tailed deer now than ever Right. I mean, yeah. back east, people are hitting multiple a year with their car during the rut, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole thing. And and they're expanding a bunch in Wyoming, you know? Like, um, why I've do got, Wyoming, why do whitetail have such a bad rap here in Wyoming? I don't know, dude. I've got three tags in my pocket this year, and I love eating them. So I'm going to try to get... I haven't got a buck with my bow yet, and so that's kind of on the game plan. I, I've they're, tried, but I, I put in for doe tags all the time, and I actually kind of specifically target the white tail because I think they're better to eat than the mule deer doe. And mm-hmm. if you think I'm wrong, well, okay, well, I'm not. <laughs> and there's not a lot of, and that's the other thing is there's not a lot of doe mule deer hunting because we've identified places that in the majority of places that mule deer populations need to grow. So we don't have the subsistence hunting of hunting females. And, and that's, that is a beautiful part of this whole system, you know? Mm-hmm. So I will, uh, it might be a little bit of blasphemy, but I am going to go on a mule deer hunt this year, you know, and I've answered the same question. I'm archery elk all the way, right? Uh-huh. That's with a bow with an elk. I'm, I'm not skipping, not skipping a single day in September. I did when I lived in Alaska for several years and uh-huh. that's why I moved here to specifically kill elk. So dude, but there's, and, and I'm going to be devil's advocate for myself. There's something amazing about a bull bugling sub a hundred yards away and you feel that thing resonating in your chest. You feel it in your toes. It curls your nails and you just, Just, Oh, it takes a pretty good. I've got goosebumps just thinking about it. Oh, we're, we're, we're turning, turning very close here to September and it's time. The mountains are calling and I must go. In fact, I leave in a few days for Kodiak, but I am going to, when I get done with Kodiak, go do some elks because it's September. have to do Uh that. I have a Montana tag and a Wyoming tag in my pocket for elk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So nice. I'm, I'm going to see if I can get two on the ground and the I, freezers are going to be full. Are you going to Montana later? Cause I'm going to go early. Season. Oh, really? Oh, Cause we have, you know, we don't, the, the, some of the units I like to hunt here don't open until mid month oh. and that opens the beginning of the month. So I've never really hunted Wyoming very hard that first two weeks yet, but I will someday. So I'm going to head up there first okay, and then come down here, but I'm going to run over to, uh, do a rifle mule deer hunt right before it closes and so i don't want to tell which unit that one is either but in, in which state this state oh okay okay i just was curious but i i i haven't yet committed to spot and stock 
mule deer with a bow on it's it's high high on my list but i keep reverting to just give me the rifle and let's go find a bit because i can't call that sucker in you're not calling him in right you're not (laughs) rattling him in and you're really not chasing him down you got to spot him yep you got to wait till he's bedded bedded and then you got to move in on him and half the time you get there and he's not there anymore (laughs) that's that's madness it is it you are you are correct it is a little bit of madness um that buck i got last year it was like the classic i actually had buddies with me that they were able to hand signal me in and um i sat above that sucker from noon till 454 when he stood up (laughs) and eventually obviously got him and uh but it is like Okay, four hours and 54 minutes of just sitting in this baking sun waiting for that thing to stand up. It was a little bit of madness. So I, one of those mule deer you saw hanging up there in the trophy room, uh-huh. we spotted at daylight at 625. He went oh. to bed at 627. Okay. At 9 a.m., we decided that he wasn't coming out of those trees because the sun was up. It was hot. It was two and a half miles hike through mountains, not just plane not he was a he was a high high alpine buck so we had to go basically over and down a ridge through a basin and then up oh. got to where he was about 2 30 in the afternoon and sat there till 6 30 no deer got up and started creeping through the 150 yards of timber still no deer demoralized turned around and walked out of there got about 250 yards away he'd snuck out of there and got above us oh. and He's on the wall, so I obviously yeah. got him. He's a beautiful buck. It was a 220-yard shot, but the wind was blowing, and a little bit of a thunderstorm came in. I put every stitch of clothes I had on. So while you're sitting there sweating for your four hours on your buck, <laughs> there was another guy on the other part of the state that was sitting there freezing. I was absolutely yeah. teeth-chattering, rifles on my pack right in front of me. I'm like 100, 120 yards from this whole patch of timber. He's just got to stand up and take three steps, and he's dead. What he must have done is between 9 and 2 when we were stalking towards him, he was obviously in the sun a little bit or got hot, and he just must have moved 150 yards down drainage into a thicker cover. Mm. And then when he got up to feed, he just fed straight up that drainage. So he basically went to my left and then turned and fed right up past me while I was sitting there. And I hiked up to the ridge to hike back out. And I'm like, hey. And I wasn't 100% sure because it was getting – it was still legal light, but it was – 10 minutes away and i was like there's a big deer he's looking at me at 220 i'm shooting him i don't know if it's my deer or not and it ended up being the same deer we were only two 300 yards away but that's cool man. they are sneaky oh i have a friend of mine um who grew up down in evanston who loves hunting mule deer and he told me this story when he was in high school or maybe just out of high school he'd gone back home for hunting season and um they were out there glassing the big you know bitter brush sage brushy like rolly country with uh, aspen uh, strips of aspen in it and he was sitting up in the the head of this big basin and there were these hunters that are pushing the aspen stand and he sees this buck get out the bottom of the aspen stand walk out about 50 yards and lay down in the sagebrush and the hunters walked right by him and as that deer got closer this is this is a secondhand story and it's a good one because i want to believe it uh but that buck just lays his head down in the sagebrush and they walked right by him <laughs> they never never saw him he eventually saw that buck the next day and i think he said he got it it was like a nice you know older buck but um they just uh, they can outsmart people so quick oh I, i've seen I that like same it. thing glassing from that same spot we're going back there this year and i'm going to take llamas instead of my horses because it's that extreme of terrain but there was a big rock and i watched some deer in above alpine basin feeding like three of them in mid-morning they fed over the edge and there's three the last three trees pine trees 
And they went and just kind of, you could, I couldn't see exactly where they went into those trees, but just a row of trees, right? Mm-hmm. 80 or 100 yards above them is a big, big rock. And I'm like, if I was over there on that ridge, it was a mile and a half away or so. I'm like, I'd stand on that big rock and just look under that tree and shoot him. Not 25 minutes later, two orange dots appear on that rock. They're standing there. They stood there for about 15, 20 minutes, and then they left. Oh, no. Not knowing that <laughs> 70 yards down the hill was a, a potential shooter. I mean, 160, 170. A nice not, deer, yeah. A nice deer, you know. So we spent several days glassing to find that one and then got him. I mean, we went for five days, and we killed him the evening of day four, and we only had half a day on day five to hunt. Yeah, hunt the morning, then you go out, right? We took yeah. pictures three and a half miles. My buddy took half the deer. I took the other half the deer. We ended up back at the main wall tent. At like We dropped the deer in the creek and hiked up because we hiked too far down back up to the tent but we'd found a little side road. So I grabbed the quad at 3.30 from the wall tent, drove down and got the deer, <laughs> made it back to the wall tent at 4.40 in the morning, been up oh. since 6 a.m. the day be- or 5 a.m. the day before, right? Yeah. So we're going on 23 hours now. And then we had to still hike back up to the top to go get our tents the next morning in our camp, and we broke it all down and got out of there. But we had a we had some good bacon at the wall tent, so it, it made it all worth it. I feel like that is the that is the quintessential hard like hard hunt, good ending, great story. Like I swear my favorite hunts have always ended like that. My my black bear I got last uh year, we were back in the truck at two thirty, home at three thirty, you know, <laughs> like yep. kind of thing. And it was just like these are the ones that you remember for sure. And so when people come by and see, you know, all these quote unquote, I don't want to say the word, I call them totems. When you Uh come by my trophy room and see the totems that are on the wall, they're to remember their memorabilia of one of the hardest things I've done in my life. Right. Yep. And then when I take one of those packages of meat out of the freezer and prepare a dinner with you and cook that nice broccoli and we, we have, you know, we break bread over that. That's, that's extra special to me because I Mm -hmm. blood, sweat, tears of Days and days and days, you know, if, if we were just having a hot dog or a hamburger or even a beef I slaughter in the backyard, big deal. Right. Right. A deer that I spent five days looking at the deer going, not, not that one. No, not that one. Yeah, maybe, but he's a little far and we'll, we'll watch him for a day. Right. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, we're going now. There's, there's no, que- there was no question. Yep. And we saw that deer from 625 to 627. He went, you know, he just appeared was heading towards his bed he gave us one look where he did that quintessential look all the way back over him and look behind him <laughs> just enough for you to be like yep yep <laughs> i mean when he's walking away i remember the guy that actually spotted him and I'll, I'll i'll discuss how in a second but he he switched from his binos to his spotter and i was just getting the spotter set up and he he said i'll never forget he goes "Ooh, he might be something special well, he is. He's 29 and 5 eighths wide. I was wondering. He's, he's wide. He's uh, So I have a goal, Jaden, to break 200 and to break 30 inches. And this hunt that we're going on this year is I'm 100% prepared to come home without a deer if it doesn't fit the bill. So I could do it with one deer easily. Uh, that'd right? be sweet. But yeah, I may shoot another 180. That's if Eddie may be 29 and 7 eighths wide. I mean, that's a... That 30-inch number is just, I don't know why I want to do it, but... I one, call those deer, though. When you see them, though, you're just like, that is a wide load. You know, <laughs> a wide like, load. That is a wide load. I like it. I like it. That's a good way to judge it. Uh, so he's... And I now have some, too. I bought some Maven 18 by 56. Oh, nice. Those are good glass. Put those on the tripod, 
And then I've got the spotter there, but I rarely use the spotter, Mm -hmm. right? I'm just spotting with those binos. And once I finally find a critter, then I go to the spotter to judge him, right? And especially those kind of distances. Are we going to commit to a five-hour stalk on a deer that may or may not, right? Yeah. But I was trying to just span with my spotter while he had his he had a pair of, I think, Swaros 15 power on tripod with his spotter right next to him, right? That's so I've, a good setup. I've gone to that for like even Havilene Acoustier. Binos go on the tripod. And if you only have 10s, it, it'll work. But I had my 10s with me. And at two and a half miles, I couldn't even spot the deer, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, and so now I've got one eye on the spotter trying to look at spot. And you just can't fluidly pan and glass efficiently through a spotter. Now, if you're going to look further, further distance, you can sit there and kind of right. pick some country apart, but you're just quicker and more efficient to put a big glass on tripods. So that's how we found that deer. And I am, I'm am super excited to try and go do it again. And I'm, I, my hat's off to you. Cause right now to, to hike up, just to hike up there is, you know, we're, we're pushing 12 plus thousand feet. So it's, oh. it's brutal. And then, to put my bow on and be like, okay, I'm going to try and attempt this with my bow. I'm going to fail a stock. And I just, I'm not, I'm not to your level yet. I think I want to start with a, a sagebrush buck in like some rim rock country that I can, yeah. you know, watch go bed and have somebody guide me in on. I want to start that way with my bow. That, that sounds exciting where I go right now. I don't know. I, well, maybe I did a nine day trip in that. Um, I would assume it's a similar kind of country that you're talking about couple years ago i was like it was more of a test of metal more than anything i was like can i do nine days by myself right um but i think the most demoralizing thing is when you go on a stock and then you blow it and then you have to go back to your camp drop a thousand feet gain 1200 feet and like stop and grab 20 pounds of water in the bottom while you're doing it you know and the whole time you're just like kicking dirt as you're frustrated about what just happened it is it is so hard mentally but there, in there is a nugget of why we do this, right? Yeah. Because if it was a, just about protein procurement, right? <laughs> there's a lot of easier ways there's to do this. There's way easier ways. <laughs> yeah. I got five horses standing here in the place that we could sell all of them and put five cows in their place, and I'd have all the protein I ever need, right? That's right. And those horses just exist to pack me and the elk around. So, But that's, that's good. that touches on, you know, this isn't just pastime for you right this isn't just a hobby this is monday through friday at work this is every weekend this is what you do for (laughs) come come on a podcast and talk about why you do this right yeah and i just had a friend over last night who he's got the elk bug and and he's getting into deer hunting too and him and i were talking about like at some level and i'm sure it happens with every facet of these outdoor pursuits but like at some level, you get so laser focused about trying to learn and know and gain knowledge and experience every facet that you can. And I think that that is probably more fun in my, you know, I'm an hour I say, I think that is more fun than just ending up with a critter on the wall. Cause you could, you could shell out some money and get the, the end result pretty quickly. Um, but being able to go through and do the whole process, you're learning, you're learning everything A to Z, whether it's the, the woodsmanship skills or the, the biology or, um, 
the the stalking and the shooting and whether it's rifle or archery it doesn't really matter when you go deep into it and get into the process dude that's where that obsession kicks in and i think that that's that's my favorite part so and i've i've said that to mirror that comment i've said it the same way i do the exact same thing that a wilderness backpacker hiker mm-hmm. you know high adventurous does i go to those same places i take that same selfie on the peak and then i turn around and go okay how do the animals utilize this landscape where mm-hmm. are they how can i get and then i start diving off the trail that most people you know uh, where the elk are or not you know if, if you're afraid to get off the, the trail in wyoming yeah you'll, you'll still kill an elk you know if you're afraid to get off the trail in oregon good luck right <laughs> you you might like you did the first first deer hunt you go out in the first 15 minutes, spot a buck 18 yards away, creep over the river rock and shoot him and then spend seven years trying to duplicate that. Let me also clarify that was definitely on the neighbor ranch's property. It was private ground. So, yes. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of factors here. There, There is a, there is a difference between public and private ground. And I mean, I'm thankful we have our conservation model intact and mm-hmm. is it perfect? No. Are we, are, you know, the, the Wyoming Wildlife Federation is obviously working to perfect it all the time and we're never gonna always achieve you know five stars but let's aim for five stars and get three stars right yeah and i mean there's there's a component and this comes from my two trips to africa you know having it legal to sell bushmeat is what they call it Mm -hmm. and you know there's the uh couple native languages the word for animal and the word for meat is the same word right yeah Okay. Animal is meat. Meat is animal. It's like, hey, I got meat. I got an animal. Oh, you got dinner. Okay. It's it doesn't matter if deer, elk, that trophy. No, they don't have those words. They don't. It's oh, you got meat. What kind of meat is it? It's meat. <laughs> it's, it's meat. Meat. <laughs> what do we have for dinner? Meat. But the same thing I've seen here is I went and did some shed hunting with the boys just for fun, mm-hmm. and got a little demoralized that there's some guys using snowmobiles to run on the open public part of the ground. And there, I was trying to shed hunt some of the closure areas after they'd opened, right? But some of those uh, non-human presence areas mm-hmm. from, what is it, December to May. Yeah. Yeah. So I was trying to shed hunt there, and I heard one guy had picked up like $16,000 worth of sheds on a snowmobile. And I'm like, I, part of me, it goes against the wildlife conservation model to be able to sell sheds, mm-hmm. right? It And... You can sit here and say, well, it's not damaging the animal. It's a renewable resource. But why do we have those closures? To keep that pressure off those late spring cow elk that are in their weakest body condition. That, you know, if you're, if you're pushing that herd with a snowmobile, you're basically killing all those calves, right? If you're not killing the, the cows, they're going to abort that calf. Yeah, just if you're not to killing this year's alive calf. You, you're potentially threatening next year. So yeah. I'm... I'd rather kill an elk every September than pick up the biggest sheds every April. So, you know, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm outspoken. I mean, I know I'm on the fence a little bit, but I see a similarity between the bush meat issue in Africa that I brought up is when a guy's tight on cash, he goes out behind his house and shoots a deer and puts it on the side of the road and sells bush meat or dries it. Right. And that's, you couldn't legally get away with that here. And that's why I tolerate the three mule deer does that hop in my back fence and eat my grass. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Great, perfect. I, they're they're the public's property, and while they're causing some damage to my private landowner right status, I can't just go destroy that animal, right? So, 
there's kind of a similarity there. I think I've painted a close picture of, you know, I think shed hunting's great. I think elk antler chandeliers are awesome. I think that money goes into conservation one way or another. But, you know, there's some abuse there on another aspect that I've mm-hmm. seen that I'm not. And my other side, I'd love to pick up a shed with my three-year-old and my nine-year-old kid, right? And we're not going to hike in the horrible grizzle bear infested areas. So we're kind of getting on the, we're scratching the surface. And so yeah, I'm going to stick them on a horse and go some places that maybe some people can't get to. Well, it's, um, Jess is, uh, so if folks didn't know already or pick this up, Jess is also my significant other. If Jess's mom is out just going for a stroll in the hills, she's in her upper sixties. Um, I want her to be able to pick up a deer antler and be like, man, this is really cool. This is a great thing to find, you know? Um, and I, I still want that to be a common thing without it just being, um, like a big deal that a foot race, a foot and, race a, a, and a monetary, and this is how I'm going to make my living. And yeah, so exactly. I get there's a balance there and I don't think that we should get to where, you know, maybe someday I have a big pile of massive elk antlers. I've got a, a little stash in the shed of mm-hmm. ones I've picked up hunting or whatever. Some, Sometimes some skull caps, and you know, someday I may want to be like, here. You know, I'm going to liquidate these antlers, and they're they're worth something, and I don't want them anymore. And so, I don't think we should legislate making it illegal to transfer those goods. But it does kind of go against the wildlife conservation model to mm-hmm. be able to sell and good and trades an animal product, right? It'd be interesting. I'm going to put myself and out on the limb here. It'd be interesting to know if you or any of your listeners would be interested in having like a, a a shed license to sell. Um, you know, like we have to do that with rocks that you pick up on BLM. You have to do it with mushrooms over a certain poundage. Didn't know if there was any interest in that in the people of Wyoming. So if you are interested, I'd love it if you got a hold of me and just tell me your thoughts because um, I'm just trying to get a gauge because I don't, I know a lot of people have floated the idea. I don't know what the general public thinks of it. I don't, I don't know. It's an interesting, I never, I'd never really thought about it. And I'm, I'm not opposed one way or another. It's pretty, pretty tough to track, right? It's like, oh, yeah. that's an unlicensed sale. It's like, oh, I, I didn't, you know, maybe it's one I harvested legally, not a shed, but and then you am I selling you? Yeah. So yeah. I, I, it's, that's a, that's an interesting thought provoking idea there, Jane. And, and just to like, I fully understand too. Um, there always seems to be a, it, it, I, I think wherever you're talking, whether it's wildlife management or roadway management, it doesn't really matter when you start adding more levels of things to police for, it gets really hard to police for them all. Yes. Like, and I'm of the opinion, if we are going to do this, a hundred percent of it goes to conservation, not right back to the general fund. Right. That's a fair point. The, nice, I, the nice thing. And on that note, uh, the nice thing about the game and fish in Wyoming contrasting to our Oregon example is old Wyoming did a pretty good job of getting off the general. F- no, let me back that up. The story is Wyoming went kicking and streaming off of the general fund for the game and fish department. And then now that we're off the game general fund, we're like, Oh, this is kind of nice. <laughs> yeah. We, we get to keep our own money and we get to do what we want with it. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's just a tangent. That's, that's fine. That's why we're here. So my, my next thought was I don't want to get to the point where like, I, I love to go salmon fishing in Alaska. My dad's got a place there. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the Kasilof River with a drift boat is where I like to fish. However, you need a fishing license. You need a king salmon stamp. You need a trailer 
uh, registration sticker, you need a boat registration sticker. You need a truck to pull said boat and trailer with a registration sticker. You need a driver's license. And then you need to buy, I like to pull plug cut herring when it's open and legal. So now you got to go buy bait and pay sales tax on top of the bait and then pay a parking and a launch fee to put your boat in said river and then pay a removal fee on top of buying the gas to go catch a fish. And that that gets me into our PK lure moment of, I never really, you know, my dad's a big fisherman and the guys that have listened to this podcast know that and know that that's probably why I'm a big hunter. But we got to highlight PK moment in their spot. And PK Lures is a Wyoming started company. They make some great lures for hard water or open water. I don't like that hard water as much. I like my water liquid. And usually I like to be skiing on top of it. But when I do wet a line, I uh, I get to go use PKs quite often. And if you hadn't tried one yet, Jaden, they've got some pretty cool lures for pretty much any species of fish. They got some cool lures and I've been I've been going with the flutterfish with Patrick in certain spots and we've been hammering fish. So you just cast it out, let her sink for a second, rip it up, r- crank, rip it up again, let it sink. And it just, it acts like a dying minnow and the fish can't resist it. So whether it's walleye, trout, bass, definitely that's for me. I, I've now got my boys into, we've got a lake around here. We are using flutterfish just on our own and just slaying the rainbows. And uh, Wyoming has the, uh, master angler program and through patrick i've got a couple master anglers now i've put in for and submitted and got them and my nine-year-old is on the hook he wants to get his own 20 inch rainbow trout master angler so we've gone a couple times and he's got some 18 17 and every fish we bring home oh, we got to measure that one dad we got to measure that one and we're smoking those trout and they're they're not as good as the king salmon by <laughs> or or the sockeye salmon but yeah that gets our trout fix in that's awesome, man. I'll have to give some of those lures a shot. I, I have gotten really into the hard water, especially um, especially when, like last year, man, it was so high pressure. There was hardly any ducks down until the very end of season. So we went out in like December, November, and did quite a bit of hard water fishing, and uh, it's pretty fun. And I, I like it. It helps me get through the, the winter. Well, I'm going to give the listeners a carrot because I don't have it in front of me. I'm not as prepared as I should be, but we do have a promo code for PK Lures. So you'll have to go listen to a couple other episodes and you'll have to go check out another episode. And in there buried is a PK Lure promo. So get you some percent off and get get a PK Lure order in. They do have them in at Rocky Mountain Discount Sports as well. So nice. next time you're preparing to go do a little fishing, they... They got some quarter ounce, eighth ounce, little tiny jigs that work really good in some of the smaller lakes, panfish, but their their half ounce out there in the big water does really good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll swing by there. I'm going through town again. Uh, I should be probably going by there tomorrow and Saturday. So, uh, Fire Tiger or the Red Dot Glow? Okay, that's hot tip. I like that. Thank you. So that's, that is the one thing why I brought the fishing up is some of those fish nuts delve into the world of, you know, whether it's, you know, Zach even with lake trout fishing or, I mean, there's, there's lots of these guys. And I've noticed there is a huge similarity to where the really, it's, it comes down to sportsmen and mm-hmm. 80% of the fish and game are harvested by 20% of the sportsmen. Right? right. And it's those guys that uncover every facet and angle and are learning every tip and trick. And, you know, they're practicing 
driving down the road with their bugle tube on their way to work every day, right? It, yep. They're not listening to the radio or they're probably not listening to this podcast. They, they got their reading and they're learning how to call elk. And that's that dedication to this sport is what's been so alluring to me, right? I've fly fished, I've spinner fished, I've bait fished, I've rifle hunted, I've bow hunted, short of atlatl. I love trapping. I mean, it's got a bad rap and people like to turn their nose up at it. But, you know, to to go out and place some leg holds and do the work, yeah. and, you know, and find the locations and, and do it legally and right and, and get after it, it there is something on a cold December morning to, to get up, start the truck up, grab the kids. I grab my fur hat and we're, we're going to go check traps, right? Yeah. Even if it's three down at the back of the property, it's, you never know quite what you're going to get, right? It's, it's that feeling of going to check trail cameras yep. times a hundred because the animal's still there. <laughs> I just, I just barely got, I mean, I got all my trap tags and set a handful out last uh, winter and uh, I've been kind of talking with the guys at the Wyoming Trappers Association. Um, Phil here in this local area is a great resource. And, um, but uh, it started because we have a bunch of chickens and then the raccoons are getting into our chickens. And no more chickens. Oh, yeah. You, the head popped off of one and you're like, uh-oh, we need to remedy this issue. And I was playing defense for the first couple of years and now I've taken to offense. Um, <laughs> I like that. I was playing defense and that wasn't going so well. So we switched to offense for the raccoons. That's right. And uh, but and so I've got this... Um, we rent some prop. We rent our house that's on a ranch, and so he's totally cool with me trapping raccoons and coyotes and whatever. And uh, so I had like a one mile trap line behind the house down the creek, and I throw my heavy pack on every morning, grab my little twenty two, and go check the traps. And so I was getting a workout in, checking my traps, and it was just a good. I think I'm gonna have to do this every year now because it was a good routine. And like you said, it's just as like Christmas. You walking up these strap. Um, one of the raccoons, dude. Oh, I I wish there was a master trapper designation. I think he would have made it for me. <laughs> he was a honker. Uh, well, wait till you fun. graduate to Pine Martin, Bobcat, and oh. then Wolves. And 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 that's like the Bobcat game. That is that is where it's at. I had a couple of uh, coyotes. how many bobcats have you seen in the wild, dude? I don't think I've seen any. Now yeah. that you mention that, I've I, seen some cougars too. Like I think I'm at six or seven in my life, and I'm not seeing a bobcat. I've called two bobcats in predator calling. That's cool. And I've trapped plenty, my fair share of bobcats. But getting to be in personal with bobcats is, they, I you just don't see them. I mean, no. you see them less than you see mountain lions, and yeah. they are sneaky. That is so cool, man. I think. And also that's one of the few trapping games left where you can cover some of your gas ish. You're, you're never going to be profitable trapping bobcats. No. I mean, I, my brother and I have a pretty impressive picture of bobcats, but you know, but you look at wear and tear diesel equipment time. Yeah. We might've, we might've put, put a hundred bucks in the bank account, right? With Bobcats. Now everything else. Mm-hmm. And that's where I wanted to get into a little bit is the sad decline of raccoons, right? And the story and the symbiosis relationship of every species that we've talked about so far. But this one, you know, we used to have a lot of fur coats. Hollywood was fur, 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 right? And oh, you're saying the sad decline of the market. Of the market, yeah. I was like, I was like, sir, there is not a decline of raccoons well, behind he, my house. Here's I the will un- tell you that. Here's the unintended <laughs> consequence, right? Because there's the only demand is Russia for fur coats. Right. And primarily one of the main fur coats is raccoon. 
Mm-hmm. There's there's lots of other ones, but coon is a big fur for coats, especially in those colder climates where they want a big fluffy coat. So coons were 20, 30 bucks a coon. You could almost cover your gas, right? Coons are now three, four bucks a coon. And if you've ever skinned and fleshed and stretched a coon, it's not a five minute chore. No. I mean, nutria, bam. Muskrats, bam. But coons are a pain, right? Yeah. But when the coon market's up to a good, clean coon's 40, 45 bucks, and you can maybe do two an hour. I'm I'm slow. I can maybe do two an hour, but you can catch a, a pile of coon. You can skin them pretty quick, but flesh of those suckers is, yeah. I mean, however, by removing all those coons, I'm a huge proponent of pheasant hunting. I love pheasant hunting. I got a dog that loves pheasant hunting. And if if you're out and about after I get done with that October mule deer hunt, I'll be right here on uh, Ocean Lake in this pheasant area. You'll see the old bow spider truck <laughs> almost every morning because I'll get up, have breakfast, load the dog, right? It doesn't even start till 8, so I leave the house here at 7.35. I go park <laughs> at a spot. I walk around. By 9.30, if we don't have our two birds, I don't care. I load the dog up. I'm back here by 10, and I work till 4 or 5, right? So yeah. I get my full work day in, plus I get to go kill pheasants. Yeah. But you know what's the hardest thing on pheasant? Coons. They destroy pheasant nests and eat the eggs like crazy, right? Yeah. So if the fur market's high, and there's guys like you out there vacuuming up a bunch of coons, and you can never get rid of all the coons. I don't care what you say. Mm-hmm. But then the pheasant numbers increase, right? And it's that predator-prey management relationship we've been talking about this whole podcast. And by the market being completely gutted from $40 high to maybe $4 of high, you know, and that's, again, kind of breaking our wildlife model conservation of can't sell animals. However, I really am in support of that because it it removes the coon, which is kind of the quote-unquote trash fish that eats the trophy fish right i've heard this on a different podcast so i'm not an expert at all but i heard that this is especially an issue in the kind of south southeast midwest with uh turkeys for for the exact same reason exact same reason exact Um, same problem and guys were you know if you can if you can more than cover your gas because you're not eating coons and i actually (laughs) <laughs> I'm not eating a coon, but let's hear it. Okay. Well, I was in the least you got to save the fat for me next year. I ended up waterproofing a bunch of my leather goods, like with leather boots fat. and stuff with coon fat last year. And they um, do have a lot of that. I will say that. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't think we ate any of the coon fat. We eat our bear fat, uh, put it in pies and stuff. And that's pretty good. Um, but then what we did with um, ingested again, I'm I'm not very good at cooking. I do it a lot, but it's usually just hamburgers and tacos. Yeah, um, barbecue is my specialty. <laughs> there you I go. stay out of the kitchen. Uh, so Jess, man, she made this slow cooked barbacoa raccoon, and we made tacos out of it. So it, it was dang good. That was the first one that we'd really gone full bore with, and it was that big, big fat one that I was just telling you about. Well, kudos um, to you. That's uh, a it, trash panda is not on my list, baby. I'll, I'll open my horizons and the next time you cook some I, i'll uh, i will sample it this is not also a town raccoon just to be just to clarify i caught this thing in the russian olives it is not <laughs> it's a clean one as far as that is concerned um but uh anyway that was our experience and that, like i said we're just trying to just screw around with it because i think what you're getting at though is like if yeah there's a lot of stuff going to waste if you're not if you're not doing anything with that hide 
Oh, I mean, it's just kind of like that just takes all of the interest in. And guys are not out there chasing them and, and patrolling them. And so now our, our management has to adapt because that tool isn't being utilized and it's, it's not being utilized for holistic reasons, right? It's, yeah. it's selfish reasons. If somebody doesn't want to wear fur and doesn't want to be vegan. And I mean, I'm sorry, I'm we're rural Wyoming here. And you know, you said you're on defense and now you're on offense. I'm, I'm not going to advocate for the removal of any species hundred percent. Right. But I'm going to advocate to manage all those species based on the biologist's input of, Hey, this is, this is our carrying capacity and this is what our quota should be. Mm-hmm. Well, it goes back to like, we go just pretty much from where we were talking at the beginning of this is like, we humans have a footprint on or an impact on every, every part of the ecosystem at this point. The other thing is, we always have. You talk about the Eastern Shoshone that used to be in this country. They were hunting these critters, top and down, um, and having an impact as well. I've um, had this same argument of carbon footprint, right? If you go buy a Prius or a Tesla and you're sitting here touting you have a good carbon footprint, right? I would, I would say that power output, my diesel truck that's got almost 300,000 miles on it, has a much better carbon footprint than a Tesla ever will. And here's why. That cobalt and the other minerals that they mine to go into those batteries is being mined in China. That's where it is. I'm sorry, but they have the largest deposits. It then gets put on a ship burning coal or diesel to China or to Japan to get refined into plates that then get shipped to Germany to get assembled into batteries that again get shipped back to either the coast of California for Tesla or back to Japan for Toyota to get put into a car to get shipped here to the U.S. so that you can drive around and feel morally superior to me, right? Where my diesel truck getting 20 miles a gallon pulling horses up and down the, tr- the, the roadway, right? <laughs> it sounds to me, Dave, that we need your horses pulling the truck. Uh, yeah, at, at the price of diesel at the moment, <laughs> yeah. th- this uh, September, I might just actually hitch them. To, they could pull the truck to yeah, the mountain this year. Pull it the front. No, that's but, funny. But, but I, can't so, do the, so... I can't do the math exactly right, but I'm pretty sure that that Tesla or that Toyota Prius is going to have to drive. I mean, that windmill is going to have to spin until it falls apart to equal the amount of carbon that was put into making it. So we're always going to have a carbon footprint. You're never going to be carbon neutral and zero on anything. You have an impact. And one of the downsides, like let's just say for some reason the light switch flipped and we had just all renewables. All of those solar fields and windmills have to go someplace and take up habitat, wide wide open space, places for cows to chew on grass. Oh, it gets worse than that. So they have in Vegas, there's a valley just south of Vegas they were going to put That's nine right. of these mirrored solar turbines in, right? So there's instead of so, um, passive solar, it's active solar where they actually reflect the sun to the central tower. They heat the tower it, up yeah. and it drives a steam turbine. They raise the, val- the temperature in that valley something like several degrees centigrade, and they're just ev- vaporizing birds. Any bird that flies through there is getting hit with, oh. you know, 50 or 150 mm-hmm. acres of reflected mirrors. Think of a, a kid with a a magnifying glass and an ant, same thing, right? Yeah. And they're just, and they raised the temperature of the valley so hot. And well, now we're, you know, so that's the, the solution, long-term solution. I know this is a hunting fishing podcast, but (laughs) it's hydrogen power. And that's, 
that's a fact. And in using less overall, which I don't see that changing. In and the going near back to grass fed beef, because what we have here before we had grass fed bison. Well, I don't think we should go back to bison because could you imagine <laughs> that on the roadways? Because bison do not care about fences. They will go through any. I mean, the the look at the fences they have to put in to keep the bison in. Yeah. Side note, I do think that be, now since roadkill has been legal to pick up, I think there was two bison that have been picked up yeah. off the roadways. I, uh, which means someone had to hit it. So yeah, <laughs> it's not um, good. That's, that, that's that's an overall net negative for the. You know, we have to replace a pickup now, and yeah, let's just let's put a fence in and keep the bison off the road. Yeah, or let's pull the road up. And just not drive there anymore. I mean, I guess that's a solution. Yeah. That's well, growing up very close to Eugene, Oregon, I got told more than once that hemp was the uh, saver of the planet and we just <laughs> all need to have hemp. And you know what? If you're ready to roll the sidewalks up, turn the electricity off, and go out in nature and pick mushrooms all day, great. But civilized society isn't going to do that. And I'm not going to do that. I like to flip the light switch on and have the lights come on. And I know that's attached to a coal plant somewhere or a natural gas plant. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, no, in Oregon, it was a dam. So, you It's know. killing all the fish and they're going to rip out. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started on Oregon, my friend. Uh, We're going to. So, I, Jaden, I've, I've loved having you on. Uh, we do have to hit our last sponsor, which is a little self-serving, but Bo Spider, thank you. Um, if you don't know what bow spider is, I mean, I'm I'm assuming you know what bow spider is. Oh, of course. So uh, it's a universal bow packing and storage system that, you know, everybody's favorite is the headrest of their truck. That's my favorite because that's where my bow received all its damage. And when I tell customers that in the booth, they always give me kind of a, a cockeyed glance like, is this guy facetious right now? Is he being genuine? And no, I... I really do love having one strapped around the headrest of the truck, but you can utilize one on the wall at home, up your tree stand, no pull rope needed up and down the tree. I don't tree hunt, stand hunt much. You know, I might pick up saddle hunting. We'll see. And I, I have a dream of killing a bull elk over a wallow in a saddle in the wilderness. That that would be cool. But obviously, if you watch our how-to videos, it goes on your backpack, goes on your hip, on your wall at home, on your headrest, on your tree. So check Bow Spider out. If you're getting ready to go chase uh, elk in September, one less thing to have to carry is that heavy bow, and it, it is worth it. Oh, man. Jess has hers all, all over the place, and but she runs that on her pack just like every day in the every day in the fall. We're headed in. She's got that thing strapped on her back, and we get into some bugles. It floop, just like a ninja pulling a sword out of their sheath. It's... You, you will get to the point, at least I have, if once you get your bow spider and you utilize it on the back of the pack like that, where I'll sit down and have a sandwich or rip a bugle, sit in a meadow, and just, just a five-minute breather, and then, hey, we're going to bust more country, right? Because I'm just, I'm like, I, I think of elk hunting like a sane net. I just, the more the more country I can sane through my net, the more critters I'm going to catch until I come across that one. I, I kind of run and gun turkey hunt like elk, right? I just... Mm-hmm. I'm going to cover country till I find a bull that wants to play the game. And when we screw up on him, I don't care. I'm going to cover more country till I find a bull that's going to play the game. And eventually one's going to come in with the wind, right? With the collar in the right spot. And he's going to die. So, but uh, there's been a couple of times I've got off that, you know, that snack break and walked about a hundred, 200 yards and been like, Oh no, I left my bow. Oh, where's my bow? Where's my, you know, kind of do like a little spin around, like <laughs> check your pockets for your phone, or your key. Like, Oh no. Oh, yeah, it's on my back. Okay, phew. <laughs> you will do that. I've had a couple customers do it as well. I've done it 
a half a dozen times. I'm like, did I leave my bow back there 200 yards? <laughs> and when my brother was hunting with me with the prototype, in the dark, we both just leaned on the side of the trail, sitting there, taking a breather. You know, and there's nowhere to sit down usually. I mean, you're lucky if you find a rock or a stump where I go. So it's just sit on the ground. Well, he leaned back a little too far and just unclipped his bow. And it just quietly landed in the bushes because it didn't even fall. It just kind of rested there, right? Because mm-hmm. he was almost laying on the ground. We got up and I went first and he's hiking behind me. And we went like 50 or 100 yards and he switched to hiking in front of me. And in my headlight, we'd gone maybe another 50 or 100 yards. I'm like, hey, I'm looking, trying to look around him. I'm like, why don't you have your bow and your bow spider, man? I just got this set up and just got it on your bow and your pack. Should solve all your problems, right? I'm like, why are you back to carry him? I'm like, hey, where's your bow? And he's like, Uh (laughs) he turns around goes running back and laying right there on the side of the trail so one big uh, piece of advice is if you're riding a horse a mountain bike e-bike dirt bike four-wheeler put a second strap down low around that so it can't come out because i've had several customers even myself included a horse went to bucking and the bow was gone now thankfully a bush caught the bow just at the right angle and i got the horse under control but yeah if you just clip that in there and, and go to try and ride a bronc and buck it's not going to work out or you hit the seat on the four-wheeler or the luggage rack on the mountain bike pops up or you just hit a bump just at the right angle hard enough yeah put one more strap around that you're not you're going to be much happier going in on your week-long hunt where you don't drop your bow and break your side off oh that's a good pro tip but if you're just hiking around oh heck yeah thing works great so well Jaden, that's our sponsors. I think uh, we've given people a lot to think about. Thank you for coming and how can people get a hold of the federation and get a hold of you? I really appreciate you having me on too. I, I this has been super fun cuz I know we've just been chatting and passing for uh, probably a couple of years now and it, and I'm glad that we finally got a chance to sit down and I really appreciate you having me on. Um if someone wants to get involved with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, I will say the best thing to do is to first just follow us on the social medias or get our emails. And you can find that at Wyoming Wildlife on Facebook and Instagram or at wyomingwildlife.org to get the rest of the information. That is the best first step because then you get to find out what things that we're up to, what things that we're doing that you want to support or get involved in. That's really important. Um, And again, you can DM us through there. You'll get a hold of me if you do. The other aspect, if you do want to just, something I said was particularly not related to WWF today, but you wanted to get a hold of me, it's at Jaden Bales on Instagram. Perfect. Yeah. So any comments, questions, concern, if you're infuriated about what David said about sheep hunting in Alaska, Jaden will take the comments, questions, <laughs> concerns. <laughs> no, guys, again, I, we couldn't have this podcast without you, the listeners. How you can help us is... Wherever you're listening to this right now, share, rate, subscribe, leave a comment. Definitely on top of that, tell your friends, right? Hey, we've got this cool podcast because there's, whether you've got the hunter, the fisher, you know, the hardcore backpacker, whoever's in your life, if it's just baking bread, if it's charcuterie, if it's smoked salmon, we've got something for you on this podcast and we want to keep it and we want to grow it. We do have uh, our socials out there. Uh, We have Radcast Nation now. So get on there, follow us, subscribe. Check it out and tell your friends. Say, hey, there's this new, there's this cool new podcast that's, while we are Wyoming based, we're not just for Wyoming residents. That's right. I, I appreciate all the episodes you guys have done. You do a, a ton of good education on here. So keep up the good work. All right, guys. Until next time, keep listening. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. 
If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.